Please turn to the Gospel of John and chapter 14. John 14, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. This week I'll focus on the beginning of the passage, and then next week we'll conclude by looking at the end of the passage. John 14, verses 1 through 14. Please give your attention to God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, as many of you know, last weekend I married off my youngest daughter. It was a joyful, Christ-centered celebration. And after totaling up all the receipts during the past week for the building rentals and caterers and photographers and decorations, I think, I think that I can still live in my house. Matter of fact, after the fact, after the wedding was over, I actually found out that you can actually buy wedding insurance. I didn't know about this until just a couple of days ago. There's wedding insurance, which basically protects you against cancellation of the ceremony due to the minister not showing up, which didn't worry us too much, or extreme weather conditions. Connell and Chris, you might want to look into that. Or, sorry, there's a story there. Ask Connell later or just illness in the wedding party, anything that might prevent the ceremony from taking place, you can actually buy insurance that will cover all your non-refundable costs. I found out that there's actually even a cold feet rider that you can add to that insurance policy, <laughs> so that if either the groom or the bride backs out at the last minute, not only are you covered for the cost of the wedding ceremony, but you're also covered for the cost of counseling for the one who's left at the altar. It's amazing what you can get insurance for, isn't it? Basically, if you can think of any risk in your life, 
you can find somebody that will sell you some insurance to cover that risk. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good stewardship to have some insurance, some kinds of insurance. It would be unwise to not have some kinds of insurance. But if you take it to an extreme and you try to eliminate all the risk in your life by covering it with insurance, I think ultimately you're betraying the fact that your peace, your security, your confidence is in your own provision for yourself or the insurance company's provision for you and not ultimately in the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says again in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's kind of hard to understand what Jesus means by that at first because if you've been with us for the last few months as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, it's actually kind of odd that he would say this, isn't it? Because we've heard several times already that Jesus himself was deeply troubled. Is he being a hypocrite here? Is he saying, do as I say, not as I do? How could he tell his disciples, let not your heart be troubled, when, if you go back to chapter 11, when Jesus stood at the, at the graveside, at the tombside of Lazarus, and he saw the grief of Lazarus' family and friends, it says in the text there, chapter 11, verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Same word in the original Greek. Deeply troubled to the point where, as it goes on to say, he wept. If you go over to chapter 12 and look at verse 27, there in that context he's telling his disciples again, trying to prepare them for the fact that he is going to leave them, he is going to die. Of course, they don't understand that, but he's trying again to tell them. And he says in light of that, in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. Again, the same word that he uses in chapter 14. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then in chapter 13, verse 21, as he's gathered with his disciples at the Last Supper, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, same word, and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So how could Jesus tell his disciples, let not your heart be troubled, when obviously he's been troubled about many things in recent hours and days? Well, the first thing that it tells us is that it's good to be troubled about some things. It's good and necessary for God's people to be troubled about some things, the kinds of things that troubled our Lord. The pain and sorrow, the grief that death brings into this world. Facing the judgment of God should be troubling. And being betrayed by a close friend or a family member or a brother or sister in Christ, that should be deeply troubling. Those kinds of things troubled our Lord. Christianity is not stoicism. Christianity is not a message of put a smile on your face, be happy no matter what the circumstances. Our Lord proved that to us in his own example. We should be troubled about sin in the world, sin in our own lives primarily, but sin in others and sin in the world in general and all of its effects. It should trouble us. Matter of fact, the problem is that we're not troubled enough by the things that troubled our Lord Jesus Christ. They're too far down our priority list. Well, what did he mean? What did Jesus mean then when he said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled? What's he saying to them? 
What are they troubled about that they shouldn't have been troubled about? Well, that's where it's interesting to take this very familiar passage and put it in its context and realize where were the minds and hearts of the disciples at this time? What was troubling them? Well, Jesus, even as I said a moment ago, he's been trying for a long time to tell them that he was going to have to die, that their grandiose expectations of a messianic kingdom coming into play and driving out the Romans and establishing heaven on earth, that those visions were not what was about to happen. He's been trying to tell them that. He's been trying to prepare them for his death over and over again. They haven't gotten it. But one thing is, if you've noticed that in recent uh, passages we've been looking at, they are starting to get the message that he's leaving. That they seem to begin to understand here. He is leaving them, and that's troubling to them. He's also just announced that one of their number, of the twelve, one of them is a traitor. One of them is going to betray Jesus Christ. We know that was troubling to them. As a matter of fact, John tells us, the other gospel writers actually tell us, they went around saying, Lord, is it me? Is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? It troubled, it shook them to their core to think that they might be the one who would betray Christ. And as we saw at the end of chapter 13, he had just told Peter, no doubt in the presence of the rest of them, that he was going to betray Jesus three times before the sun came up in the morning. That's got to be deeply troubling to the disciples because Peter was their leader. He was their spokesman and their leader. If Peter's not going to stand firm in faith in light of what's coming, how could they have any hope of standing firm? I mean, put yourself in their place. They had given up everything and everyone in their lives in order to follow Jesus Christ. They've devoted everything to him for the last three years. And all their, their, their understanding of his message at this point is he's leaving them and that they're all going to fall away to one degree or another. Deeply distressing to them. So I want you to understand, first of all, before we get into the, t- the text, is that we tend to hear this passage read a lot. You're familiar with this passage. A couple of verses in it particularly. Very, very familiar to any Christian. But we tend to hear this passage read at Christian funerals or messages on evangelism but I want you to understand that in context when Jesus says let not your hearts be troubled he's talking to disciples that are having a major crisis of faith everything they've devoted themselves to seems in danger of falling away and they're troubled and that's what Jesus says stop being troubled be at peace We are not to be troubled by our fears of believing in Christ in vain. We are not to be troubled by fears of falling away. We are not to be troubled by fears of being abandoned by Christ. Jesus says, you believe in God. That's probably the right way to translate the next verse, next part of the verse. You believe in God. He's, assuming, he's granting them that. You believe in God. Believe also in me. I think we lose sight of how radical a statement that is on Jesus' part. He's asking of them the same faith that they have been placing in their creator and redeemer. He's putting himself in an equal place with God. He's saying, the way you trust God the Father, I want you to trust me. 
And that, of course, is, he, says, he says believe, but it's believe in the sense of resting in, trusting in, putting your life in his hands. It's not just an intellectual assent to the facts. It's giving yourself to him. Trust him. Again, kind of an audacious thing for him to say, a, a man who's about to go to the cross and be crucified by his enemies. He says, believe in me, trust in me. But he gives a basis for that trust. It's not just a nice thought. He's giving a solid foundation for that trust that should set all of us at ease if we put our faith in him. There's a song that has been really popular the last few months by Farrell called Happy. Did you ever listen to the words of that song? I, I admit, it's incredibly infectious. It's, I mean, the, the tune is fantastic. But the words are pretty sappy. And, you know, the, the one, the, the main, I pulled out the main quote from the center of the chorus, and it says, can't nothing, you know, forgive the language, can't nothing bring me down, my level's too high. And it kind of repeats that. And that's the message. I don't know if you've been around the 20 years ago, you know, don't worry, be happy. Bobby McFerrin sang a song that had almost exactly the same content to it. Same message. Let me give you a word of advice. If you've got a friend who's going through hard times and they're distressed and troubled, don't share that song with them and say, cheer up. It does nothing for you because there's no basis for the happiness. There's no basis for the peace. There's no basis for saying, don't be troubled. It's empty. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives a guarantee here of three things. I want you to notice this. Three things to base your peace and assurance upon. First of all, a secure destination in life. Secondly, a secure plan for getting you there. And thirdly, a secure way of access immediately. A secure destination for your life, a secure plan for getting you there, and a secure means of access immediately. Let's look at the first one, the secure destination that Jesus promises. I mean, think about it. You need to know where you're going if you're going to be at peace in life. I mean, the thing that's going to distress you the most in life is a fear of the unknown, a fear of the future. You need to know where you're going. You know the story Alice in Wonderland. Early on in that story, when Alice first finds herself in Wonderland, she's lost. And she comes upon, as she's walking down the path, she comes upon the Cheshire Cat sitting up in the tree there. And she says, she asks, you know, which way should she go? She's got several options. Which way should she go? Which road should I take, she says. The Cheshire Cat says, well, where do you want to go? And Alice says, I don't know. And the cat says, well, then it doesn't matter, does it? And I think, isn't that how most people live their life? They don't know where they're going. They don't know what their final destination is. And then they wonder why they're troubled about life in general. How can you be at peace if you don't know where you're going? If somebody says to you, what's going to happen to you when you die, and you say, I don't know, how could you ever be at peace? Verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In my Father's house are many rooms. Word room there. It's probably a, an inadequate translation. 
tends to make it sound like we're all going to live in a big dormitory when we get there. I don't know about some of you that have lived in dormitories for a few years. That's not very appealing. It's not really the, the, it's not really the picture that it's meant to give. It, the word literally means dwelling. And it does, it's not mansion. If you have the old King James Version, use the word mansion there. And that's, that's a bad translation too. It's not room, but it's also not mansion. It's more of a generic term that's just basically a dwelling place. And actually, as I sorted through all the possible ways to interpret that word in the original language, probably sweet is the best modern translation of it. You've got a royal suite in your father's house, is what he's saying. In other words, an, a fully adequate dwelling place, plenty of room for all your needs, but it's not, the focus isn't on luxury. That's why the word mansions isn't a good word. It's not, the focus isn't luxury there. It's where the suite is. It's in your father's house. It's yours. I am going there. I am going in order to prepare that place for you. Heaven is going to be far greater than anything we can imagine. But isn't it interesting? And have you ever been frustrated by this? If you want to think about heaven, you want to think about the new, 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 new heavens and the new earth, and you go to scripture to find out what it's going to be like, there's not a lot of detail there. There really isn't. Matter of fact, God in his word seems to avoid giving us details about what our existence is going to be like after death. The one thing it hammers on over and over and over again is that we will be with him. That's all you need to know. It's not how luxurious your dwelling place is going to be. It's going to be that it's in your father's house. And really, in the Jewish mindset, a lot of them, they'd build onto their houses. Every time they'd marry off a daughter or a son, they'd add on to the house, and you'd have this big family complex. And I think it's, that's really the view. We're going to be together with God the Father, we're going to be together with God the Son, and we're going to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity and perfection. That's all you need to know. And that's really all that's important, isn't it? In Revelation... I really appreciated uh, John in the Sunday school this morning, adult Sunday school, prepared the ground for this well, talking about shalom and, and what the, the final state of things will look like. Let me just take you back again to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Over in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I mean, there's so much fantastical imagery, uh, symbolic pictures in the book of Revelation. But when it comes to what, down to what's the new heavens, the new earth going to be like, it's going to be that we're with him. We can see his face. We're going to be in his very presence. That's the blessed hope. Is that your hope? Is that the focus of your life? We're so preoccupied and distracted by the pleasures and responsibilities and obligations of this life, everything that's going to turn to dust and blow away. We're so caught up in things that are temporary, and we spend so much, so little time pursuing the presence of God, which is what we're going to spend all eternity doing. We spend so little time here. We have so little time for scripture and prayer and worship and fellowship with God's people, which are the foretastes of that fellowship with God and the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God's people throughout all eternity. 
Well, how can we be sure that we have that sweet in our Father's house? How can we be sure? Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare that sweet for you. Well, does that mean that now that Jesus has died on the cross and been raised from the dead and he's up in heaven, does that mean that he's gone back to carpentry work? He's building rooms, he's building big dwelling places, suites for his people? That's not what he's saying, is it? In this context, every time Jesus talks about going, leading up to this text, every time he talks about going, where is he talking about going to? The cross. When he says, I am going to prepare your room for you, he says, I'm going to the cross so that you will be welcomed into that suite in heaven one day. I am going to the cross. He is going to die as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice. He's going to shed his blood in our place, taking upon himself the eternal wrath of God that our sins deserve. And we are going to be cleansed in his blood. And we're going to be given his righteousness as a gift by faith so that our sweet will be ready for us when we get to heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's all the preparation that's needed. Which brings me to the second secure thing that we are to rest our peace upon, which is the secure plan. He's talking here about the plan of redemption. That covenant of grace that he established right after man fell in the Garden of Eden and and established a relationship with Adam and Eve, the covenant that was expanded with Noah, the covenant that was fully uh, uh, established with Abraham, where God says, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I will redeem you. I will bring you to myself. I I will give you my son as the bridegroom, and you will be the bride of the bridegroom. And you'll be in this covenant relationship forever. That's the secure plan that Jesus alludes to here. I mean, you've got plans in your life, don't you, that give you security in a limited sense? I hope you have a plan for your future financially, that you're setting aside savings, that you're setting aside investments to help provide for your future. But you realize that if that's where your confidence lies, if that's where your peace lies, there are so many things that could take all that away in just a moment. A financial collapse, a natural disaster, illness, death, theft. If that's where your peace lies, then it's a foolish foundation for that peace. Jesus says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you notice the emphasis on being with him again? But what I want you to notice is the plan that's behind that statement. I am going to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption, and when I have done that, you can be sure that I will come again to take you to myself. The going to the cross absolutely ensures that he will come again to complete his work of saving us. Over in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How often do you think about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Do you think about it weekly, monthly? We should be thinking about it at least daily, if not multiple times during the day. 
I think that's the scriptural perspective. We are to be thinking about the plan, the covenant of grace, the plan of redemption, which culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ, that that is to be a hope that reassures us every day. It's one of the tragedies of the silly end times teaching that has populated the church of Jesus Christ in the last couple of generations is that Christians now, if you take the scripture seriously, you're either embarrassed by end times teaching or you're just apathetic about it. When it's meant to be something that we daily embrace as our hope, as a foundation for our peace so that our hearts aren't troubled in life. That's the role it's supposed to play. It's not just some theological point. And I know, I hear this joke all the time. I'm not, an, I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm not a amillennialist. I'm not a premillennialist. I'm a pan-millennialist. You've probably told the joke. I've heard the joke many times. I appreciate the joke. Yes, it's funny. We don't want to argue about all this. But I don't like the attitude that sometimes comes with it. Oh, it's all going to work out in the end. I'm not going to trouble myself with that sort of thing. If that's what you mean by calling yourself a pan-millennialist, You need to repent of that because this is way too important. It's too crucial to your hope and peace in life that you do dwell upon the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Let me take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a passage Paul is trying to drive home some very practical points, and he does so by alluding to the second coming of Christ. But I want you to notice how this passage ends. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. you hear that emphasis again? He's coming again, and we're always going to be with the Lord. That's the good news. But how does it end? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We're not to fight about the details of how Christ is going to come again. We are to encourage. Matter of fact, another translation says, comfort one another with these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Look to the second coming. If he went to the cross to prepare a suite for you in his father's house, know for sure that he will come again to take you to himself. And there you'll find your peace. No matter what trouble you go through in life. The plan of redemption was devised by God the Father before the world was created. It was accomplished. Everything that needs to be accomplished was accomplished at the cross when Jesus Christ died in our place and was raised from the dead. And it is being applied every day in the lives of God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will all be brought to completion one day when Christ comes again. You see, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, the book of Romans is about the gospel. But don't ever miss the fact that when Paul gets to the end of that whole section of talking about in great depth about what the gospel is and what it means... He gets to the end. Listen to what he says at the end of Romans 8. What's the practical impact of that for our lives? I'm going to pick it up in verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, according to his plan is what he's saying there. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord let not your heart be troubled. Because he's gone to the cross and he's coming back to complete this work. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's his work. And that's why Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Which brings us to that final security, the secure way of access, the way. That secure way that is given to us as a gift. Back in chapter 13, Peter had asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said to him, where I'm going now, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Peter couldn't accompany him to the cross. He had no place on the cross with Jesus. But once the cross had been accomplished. The way would be open to follow Christ to the Father's suite. You will follow afterwards. And then in verse 4 of today's passage, Jesus says to all the disciples, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way to these clueless disciples. You know, I appreciate Thomas. At least Thomas, you know, we talk about doubting Thomas and we kind of look down on him, but Thomas was genuine. He was authentic. He was real. He wasn't afraid to say, I don't get it, Lord. All the rest of the disciples pretend that they got it. He says, I don't get it. We don't understand where you're going. How can we know the way? And I'm sure at that moment he's thinking about some either geographical, physical path that they had to follow or maybe some spiritual path or some code of ethics or some great thing that they had to go out and try hard and accomplish in order to go where Jesus was going, some great effort. But Jesus says, no. Thomas, I am the way. I am the way. I'm the way because I'm the truth. And I am the life. The way into the eternal presence of God isn't a religion. It's not a moral code. It's not a philosophy. It's not an intellectual puzzle. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ didn't point us the way to go to God. Jesus Christ didn't blaze the trail so that we could make our way to God. Jesus Christ wasn't the ultimate example of self-sacrifice and love that we're to follow in order to get to God. That's not how Jesus takes us to God. He says, I am the way. You have to be in relationship with me. It'd be like me if I were to go to the White House and go out to that outer gate and stand at the guards, little guards booth there and say, I'd like to go into the Oval Office and talk to the president. 
they would laugh at me. Unless the president were to come out to the gate and say, it's okay, he can come in, he's with me. Only on the basis of a relationship would that ever happen. And that's, in a sense, the way it is with heaven. If you're in Christ, if you're in relationship with him, he takes you into the kingdom. He is your passport into his kingdom. Jesus is the way. He's the door to the sheepfold, he said. And to Mary and Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. You know, that's a very important message for this university town. Because we live in the midst of a great deal of intellectual pride. And we need to keep preaching the message that you don't come to know the truth through intellectual prowess. You can't know the truth by thinking hard and studying hard. You need to know Jesus Christ. He is the truth. And all other things that you know need to come through knowing him. Or ultimately everything you know is worthless. Knowing truth begins in a relationship, a faith relationship with Christ. It's not an intellectual discipline. That's why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. As unpopular as that message is, it is at the very core of the gospel. Unless you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, unless he died for your sins and was raised for your justification, you are lost. There is no hope. There's no place for you in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. But if you are in Christ, your suite is ready and your reservation is guaranteed in blood. Jesus doesn't promise us ease and comfort and prosperity in this life. Matter of fact, exactly the opposite, really. But if we believe in him, he promises us a secure place, a secure destination that you can be sure about, and a secure plan for getting you there that's all his work, and a secure access that's given to you as a gift the moment you believe in him complete access to the Father and the Son. It's interesting, if you just jump ahead a couple of chapters over to John 16, let me read to you the very last verse of this whole discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples before he prays for them. The very last verse says, in verse, chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's an old Christian folk song that I heard, probably one of the first Christian songs I heard after I gave my life to Christ as a teenager. It goes like this. I know not what the future holds, and I have no way of knowing, but I know the one who holds my future, and I have no fear of where I'm going. Let's pray. Father, Forgive us for being so distracted from what is really our hope and our security. Forgive us for being troubled about the things that the world is troubled by and not being troubled by the things that our Lord Jesus Christ is troubled by. Give us his heart. Give us his hope. And renew in us a faith that clings 
to Christ and all that is attained for us through the cross. Refine and revive your church, we pray, as we dig deeper into your gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen.